Good morning, everybody. Great to see you all there. I always like to stand at the back and just have a look at who's here and just really get a, a, a feel for my audience from the back rather than the front. And now I'm at the front. I have an exciting message to share that's been on my heart for about a month. It's fresh off the press and it's alive to me. And I just hope that as a, because it's alive to me in my life, you'll pick up something from it for your life as well today. Who knows who Liam Maloney is? Yep. Liam, Liam Maloney, in the paper the other day while I was having my morning coffee, it's his, a bit of his story. He's the Paralympic double gold medalist with no legs and just those stumps that he runs on. And the article was written by his father. And it was just really saying things like, it's more than most spectators would realise. As a young double amputee, there have been waves of adversity that have knocked him down. And they often have, ar have arisen in the private moments of his life. Written from his father. He said, there were times when he was only about eight or nine when he was in his bedroom and just in tears saying, I just want legs like everybody else. And it was only those that were close to Liam that would know the pain that he had gone through in order for him to surpass all his expectations and not just only turn up at the Paralympics but to win gold. It says from the scars, uh, the scars from the rubbing on his prosthetic limbs on his skin tell the story. And after he runs each race, his stumps swell and they bleed. He can't walk and, he can't, and he's got to take his limbs off and have an ice bath day after day after he runs his race. He trained relentlessly through the pain in his stumps in all kinds of weather and usually alone. Amazing story of a young man. What I want to say is that what goes below the surface and what we don't know about the people who we think are successors in life, there is always a story, an understory to be told that has to be fought, battles that have to be fought, promises that you've been given, but battles to actually receive them and walk in them. The Bible itself is just full of stories about God's interaction with mankind, about men and women being called up into the purposes of God. And it creates a storyline, not just written in the Bible, but you and I are captured and called up into that storyline, God's great story. And our lives are being recorded just like those have been recorded in, um, in the Bible. The message I want to share to you, with you today is some learning points from the life of Joshua. Chosen to go in and take the territory of the new land of Cana, Canaan in an era of conquest. Joshua's story is filled with things not unlike that of Liam's. He was born into slavery. He grew up and spent most of his life in the wilderness. And he was one of only two spies that went on a reconnaissance mission into the promised land and came back with a good report. And it says in the Bible in Joshua that all the promises and all that was said of him came to pass. Amazing. In terms of our life stories and the life stories in the word of God, what does success look like? And what do we know? When do we know that God is with us? 
The other Sunday, Bruce Billington in his message brought up the story of Solomon. And I thought, oh no, he's going to steal my line. But he didn't, because he told half the story, and rightly so. You can tell half a story and get people to read it later. He said that God had commissioned Solomon to do something much greater than he could achieve alone. It's always too much, Bruce said, unless we're empowered by God. And God blessed Solomon for his initial obedience. We are all designed and destined to create, transform and influence the environments of our lives wherever we are. And Solomon was called to that very same thing. In Chronicles 28 verse 5, David says, Of all my sons, God has chosen Solomon. In Chronicles 28 verse 7, it says God's promises were that they would build together a kingdom that would last forever. And in Chronicles, it goes on to say that God was with him and made him exceedingly great. And it says that he could ask anything of God. And he asked for two things, wisdom and knowledge. And God gave him both. I've been the recipient of many a moment of Solomon's wisdom. One was very recently where I just said, God, I need wisdom in the situation I'm walking through. I do not know how to handle this. It was intense. It was full of conflict, had loads of politics involved in it. And I said to God, give me your wisdom. And I started to read Proverbs 2. And it just talked about wisdom will come into your situation. And also, um, it said something about discretion. Discretion will guard you and guide you. And from those two things, I realized God could come into my situation, even if I didn't have the wisdom right now. And secondly, I needed to be careful about what I said. And the next meeting I had, I took both of those on board. I've learned a lot from, from the wisdom of Solomon. But we all like a good ending, don't we? What's the point in starting well and finishing poorly? Solomon failed eventually to keep his part of the deal and the promise that God had with him. And in Chronicles, as I just said before, it said that his kingdom and the work that they did together would last forever. And a few short chapters later, it says that after successive, repetitive and deliberate turning away from God, that the kingdom was wrenched from him and taken away. Two men, Joshua and Solomon, Two men, both given promises, both given callings, both being told that they were going to be part of this creating and, and transforming and influencing their environment, but two very different endings to their stories. The kingdom that would last forever came to a grinding halt because Solomon didn't keep his part of the promise. And all that was said of him, of Joshua, came to pass and was fulfilled. So today I want to tease out why. And I want to look at the story of Joshua. The book of Joshua, if you're not familiar with it, is a war manual. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's for those who want to take up, be strong and courageous at what God has called them to. Don't read it if you don't want to, read, if you don't want to be challenged. But read it if you want to know the war manual that God has to equip you 
for the battles that lie ahead in your life. It's about the preparation, being prepared for the battle, in order to go in and gain the territory that God's got ahead for each one of us in different areas of our lives, whether it's our health, whether it's our relationships, whether, whether it's our area of work, whatever those areas are, we need to be prepared. And Joshua teaches us some lessons on how to be prepared. And it's about a time of transition. Moving from holding the line and merely being in maintenance mode, like in the wilderness where we go round and round and round, moving and being transitioned from that mode into entering a new mentality and mindset that is out there to be part of the new era of con conquest. It's about moving forward. It's about making progress. It's about taking territory. And I don't want you today to listen to what I've got to say without thinking, God, what area of my life are you asking me to address? What is this message that this woman's giving today that you want to apply to my life? Your health, your relationships, your work, our church life, whatever. I pray for the Spirit of God to, to really highlight in your life something that God wants to work with you on. We've all been made to create and transform and influence our environments. The shift in the mindset from being in the wilderness and going around in maintenance mode, boring as, into going into the promised land full of promises but lots of, lots of stuff that we have to put in there and courage to actually fight those battles, is the shift in mindset was not something that everybody was able to make. Think about the children of Israel. Joshua was part of them, but here the, most of them, the majority of them, struggled to leave the mentality of slavery that they'd had in Egypt behind when they went into the wilderness. And they aimlessly wandered for 40 years. They insisted on being fed from the hand of, of God. Just drop it from the sky, God. Give it to me. I don't want to do any work and till the land. And... The most tragic consequence of all of that was that they were left in the desert to die and they never got to inherit all that God had promised for them. Do we know what God's promised for us? Are we willing to fight for it and change our mentality? I thought about that story of the contrast between Joshua and the children of God and I said, here's a lesson. If you're going to survive the wilderness, make it count. And I think many of us can say in our lives there's been dryness and periods of a wilderness. And God would say to us today, if you're going to survive the wilderness, make it count. Make it count. What about the other eight spies that went into the promised land? Now, I think they've been given a bit of bad press. I don't know about you, but you think of Joshua and Caleb and you go, rah, 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 and you think, oh, the other eight, how pathetic could they be? What a, what a lot of wimps, okay? Imagine, if you will, living through years and years of slavery in Egypt, witnessing the spectacular escape from that into the wilderness, and years going nowhere in the desert, being chosen. And I was reading um, 
in preparation for this, that those eight spies were not just the average children of Israel. They were probably leaders of the tribes of Israel, personally chosen because they, were, they were possibly had huge potential to go in and do this reconnaissance visit and come back with a good report. They weren't wimps and they weren't just the average person in the children of Israel. They were probably leaders. But they went in to spy the land that was filled with promise and plenty, but instead they became overwhelmed with fear and anxiety. And all they could sight was the obstacles and the giants in the land. Were the giants real? Interestingly enough, yes, they were. They weren't in their imagination. So they've been given a bit of bad press. They were chosen, they went in there, but only two of those eight came back with, with a um, good report. I had a bit of a light bulb moment recently. Again, interestingly enough, Bruce, and I don't think he's here today, I had a time just recently where I was struggling with some of the things God said were blessings that he wanted in my life and trying to claim them. And all I could see was giants. All I could see was the struggle. All I could see, and I was saying, God, I thought you had called me to do this. I've been courageous. I've stepped out. And now all there is is struggle. And it seemed like really overwhelming. And I suddenly had to realize that peace is not the absence of conflict. If you want to know that God is with you or not, peace is not the absence of conflict or battles. At times it can feel overwhelming. Listen to this carefully. But it's about finding the very source of peace, the prince of peace in the battlefields of life. In the ta- finding that table in the presence of our enemies. I think often we think that if we've been called, if God has given us blessings and promises, that they should, we shouldn't have to fight for them. There shouldn't be enemies and stuff we have to fight for. But that doesn't go with what the word of God says. It says that when we go into the promised land, there are giants. They do exist. And they do want to defeat you. And they do want to pull you down. But God says, listen to the life of Joshua and get some strategies in place to help you win those battles. How do we apply this to our life? As I said before, there are areas in your life and mine that the Spirit of God wants to remind you of. And I want to move into the main part of my message now, which is about the things we can learn from the life of Joshua. The first thing I mentioned was if you're going to survive the wilderness, make it count. And that's what Joshua did. He made it count. He survived the wilderness and he made it count. The second thing I want to say is that Joshua learnt to linger in the courts of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord. Have you heard about the tent of meeting in the Old Testament in Joshua? If you haven't in a new Christian, go home and read some of this. It's exciting stuff. In, in, in Exodus, it talks about the tent of meeting. And it says, now Joshua used, used to take a tent and pitch it outside of the camp some distance away. This is in the wilderness calling it the tent of meeting. And anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to that tent of meeting outside the camp. And when Moses went out to, the, out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrance of their tents, watching as Moses with Moses at, till he entered the tent. 
As Moses went into the tent, a pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance. And while the Lord spoke with Moses, and whenever the people saw that pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would all stand and worship. And then Exodus 33 verse 11, and I think it might come up on the screen, said, And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. As one speaks to a friend, and then Moses would return to the camp. But what did Joshua do? But his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent, but he lingered. After Moses would leave, Joshua, his young aide, stayed behind, and he sought God for himself. He didn't hang off the coattails of another's faith, but he was determined that he would find and know God for himself. Flick back to the story of Solomon that we mentioned before, who was given so much, but reality was when it came to the crunch, there was something missing. One of the commentaries I read about Solomon's story was that something greater and more majestic than the temple was meant to be built in Solomon's life. But he failed to build it, and that was to know God for himself. St. Augustine, I go to bed at night at the moment, probably because of Andre, with a little book here that I read. Before I go to bed at night, I will just take one or two little passages from it on the life of St. Augustine and his work. And one of the things that I read just the other day as I was preparing was, God has made us to know him, to love him, and to serve him in this world, and to be forever happy in the world to come. Isn't that gorgeous? God has made us to know him, to love him, and to serve him, and to be forever happy in the world to come. What are we made for? We're made to know God. What is the aim that we should set ourselves today? To know God. What makes life worthwhile is having something big enough, as an objective, something that catches our imagination and lays hold of our allegiance. And that is to know God. I often think about what it was like when I was the age of these young people here. And the cry of my heart was, God, I don't want my life to be boring. I want to be involved in some exciting things. I want to be on the cutting edge. I don't want to go round and round in circles. I want to move on. I want to have something outside of myself to live for that will take me on and drive me on. And I want to encourage you, it's not just for our young people. Whatever stage in life that you happen to be at, it is for us all. It is all, we all need it desperately. None of us want the boredom of the wilderness. We want to know when we're 50, 60, 70, 80 and 90 that to know God is the passion of our lives. And we will never get to the bottom of it. There is always more to know about God. You see, Solomon's life was a very much a contrast to that of his father's, father, David. David was known as a man after God's own heart. He knew God. Despite the spectacular and very public and costly fall from grace, 
His story provides us with so much inspiration of a man after God's own heart. And I think each one of us would love to be known as a man or a woman after God's own heart. He leaves us with a story of what, it likes, what it's like when we stuff up. What it's like when for all the best of intentions we do it wrong and we fail and we muck it up. And the wonderful example of David is that he provides us with a story of what true and humble repentance is about. I'm tired of pretending that our lives are perfect, that we never fail, that we never make mistakes. We have to account for that in our lives. We have to know how to get in the presence of God and linger in his presence like Joshua did and come back on track even if we fail. Again, from my little book of St. Augustine, it says, The law of love is written on our hearts. It keeps us from sin. But if, from our weakness, we fall, we have only to turn back in sorrow, and he will forgive us and restore us to his household. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? I have to say that one again. The law of love is written in our hearts and keeps us from sin. And that's probably what we'd all like it to finish on. But it says, But if in our weakness we fall, we have only to turn back in sorrow, and he will forgive us. I love a passage here in Acts 19. Um, if you've got your Bibles with you, I do like them to hear the noise of them moving over. And, but I realise now in our technology days, the age that often people are online, um, but this is a great verse, and it may be for somebody here today that feels like they've really mucked up and they've messed up and there's consequences, just like there was for David, for his sin. But this is what repentance is all about. This is what it says. So repent, change your mind and purpose, turn around and return to the Lord, that your sins may be erased, blotted out, wiped out clean, and that times of refreshing, of recovering from the effects of the heat, and of reviving with fresh air may come from the presence of the Lord. That is out of the Amplified, and it's Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Brilliant verse. Look it up sometime. Wonderful. That's what it's all about, and David gives us a great example of what it is when we miss the mark, when we fail to do what we should do, there is always hope, there is always a way back. It was in the tent of meeting that Joshua learnt to linger in the presence of God, and he heard also the recurrent theme that God wanted to get through to him about his life. Now, each of us have a different purpose and a def different destiny to fulfill. And it's in the presence of God that he will continually put that recurrent theme into your life. And you'll be hearing something that's different from the person that sits next door to you. And we've got this series coming up called about living with purpose and finding purpose. And part of it is that we are unique and what God's planned and purpose for my life is different from yours. And when you're in the presence of God, you're going to hear a slightly different twist on a similar message. But you need to hear what it is for you. Joshua heard seven times it said he was to be strong and courageous. Now, if you're hearing messages like that, what do you think that that means you might be coming up against? 
okay? Be strong and courageous. Now, that was because, and I believe it is a word for each one of us, because the battles that we have to fight are going to be difficult. And we need to know how to find our source and our strength in God. Seven times he was told to be strong and courageous. And one of the examples is that he had to command the children of Israel to walk into the Jordan River. Now, if you remember, um, when, they, when the children of Israel escaped from Egypt, they had to go into the Red Sea, it was. But before the children of Israel went into the Red Sea, what happened to that sea? It spectacularly parted. Now, that's not particularly hard to walk into, is it, if the seas have parted? But Joshua was going to be called later on to take the children of Israel from the wilderness into, it, the, to take those with him into the promised land. He was going to have to ask and command the children of Israel that went with him to actually go into a full flooded river. There was no parting. It was only when they put their feet into the water that they were able to get through. And that was going to take courage. Be strong and courageous. Joshua needed to hear that in the presence of God because he was up for some decent battles ahead. And I'm not sure about you, but I know in my life, at the moment, right now, I'm having to be strong and courageous. So if you're going to survive in the wilderness, make it count. If you've got you, and you need to master the art of lingering in the presence of God for yourself. You need to know God for yourself. I'm going to brush over the next two, but one of the other things is he needed to be willing to be led. He needed to be willing to be led. He learned all he could from his mentor Moses. He learned all he could from his mentor Moses. And Moses eventually was not able to go into the promised land. It was only Joshua and Caleb that went in. So he learned all that he could. Now, we've, we've covered that subject before, but ask yourself, who is mentoring me and who am I mentoring? It's important. For Moses, his preparations were in the courts of Pharaoh and the backside of Jethro's farm, his father-in-law. That's where Moses was prepared to be the leader of the children of Israel. But Joshua, his preparation was in the wilderness, being mentored by Moses. He learnt all that he could from Moses, his mentor. So be willing to be led. An exciting part that we're just going to move on to before I finish is the last two points. And the fourth one is that he sought a strategy for each individual battle. And I thought this was a darn good one. Joshua fought many, many battles. You can read about them in Joshua, in Joshua 10, 1 to 6. They're summarized in there. Um, but he fought many a battle. He slaughtered the Amalekites. He had a battle at, the, at a place called Ai. And he also, one of the most famous stories we know about is the story of Jericho. But are you aware that each battle he fought, he had to go back to God for the strategy? The first one against the Amalekites was just blood, guts and slaughter. Just straight in, do it, get it over and done with. Um, the battle of Ai was slightly different strategy that God wanted him to take. And what happened when it came to Jericho? They just walked 
around seven times, not even lifting their swords. Instead, it was their trumpets, for heaven's sake. But each of those three battles came out in victory. And I wonder sometimes if part of our struggles in winning the battles God wants us to win is we haven't gone back to him and said, God, give me the strategy for this one. I need a strategy for whether it's a relationship or a work issue or a church issue or a, or a health issue. I need a strategy to survive this. I need your strength. I know, need your wisdom to come into my life to help me win this battle. I want to be known as someone who's gone into the promised land and hasn't spent my life in the wilderness just going round and round in circles. I remember a very long-standing battle that I had to fight. I'm not talking about five minutes or five years. I'm talking about a good 25-year period of time. And my testimony is that each time I got stuck, I would go back to God and say, what should I do with the strategy this time? There were times when he said, go round the rock, go round the mountain, it's not worth fighting. Other times he called me to go and approach the mountain and go over the, go over the top of it. There were times when the mountain got bigger and bigger and I thought, my goodness, what do I do now? And then God would say, stand still and let me deliver you. So in one battle that went on for many, many years, and then one time God said, I will take that mountain out, and there will be a free way for you to walk through. And he did that. So I sought him, and I loved the fact that every season through that 20, 25-year battle, he would just give me a new strategy. And I thought, well, God, I'll go with it. And it worked. And I eventually saw amazing things happen and victory. And now, so that's my, that's my next point, that he sought strategy for each and every battle. If you're going to survive the wilderness, make it count. Master the art of lingering. Be willing to be led and seek God for a strategy for each and individual battle. And I love it because we're now going to finish on what I want to finish on today, which is actually a passage that is one of the greatest battles that Joshua ever won. And what I want to bring out of it is really important. I want you to stop and to listen really carefully. It says in Joshua that now Adonai Zedek, the king of Jer Jerusalem, heard that Joshua had taken Ai and totally destroyed it, doing to Ai as he had done to Jericho and its king. And the people of Gibeon, this was just a region, had made a treaty with, of peace with Israel and had become their allies. He and his people were very much, this king was very much alarmed at this because Gibeon was an important city and Joshua had entered into a contract of peace with it. It was like a royal city. It was very strategic. In fact, it was even larger than Ai, and this king was just devastated by this news. And the king of Jerusalem appealed to five other kings, five other kings he got in cohorts with himself, and he said, I'm worried. We must go to battle. We must defeat Joshua. We must defeat the children of Israel. And then it says, and then five kings of the Amorites joined their forces 
and they moved up with all their troops and they took position, ready for attack. And the Gibeonites then sent the word to Joshua at the camp at Gilgal, do not abandon your servants, but come up to us quickly and save us. So here they were, five kings had decided they wanted to battle for this piece of land and the people who were about to be utterly destroyed sent a messenger and said, help Joshua, we need help, we need help. Now the passage will probably go on behind me now, which is what, what actually happened. And so in Joshua 10 verses 7 to 11, this is when Joshua fought one of the greatest battles of his life. So Joshua marched up from Gilgal with his entire army, including all the best of his fighting men. The Lord said to Joshua, Don't be afraid, I have given them into your hand. Not one of them will be able to withstand you. And after an all-night march from Gilgal, Joshua took them by surprise, and the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. So Joshua and the Israelites defeated them completely. And Israel pursued them along the road, going up to Beth Horon and cut them down all the way to the end point. And as they fled before Israel on the road from, from Beth Horon, the Lord hurled large hailstones down on them, and more of them died from the hail that were, then were killed by the swords of Israel. In summary, at his greatest battle in his life, there were five kings that were up against him. The distance between the two places where the messenger sent to, to Joshua and where he had to fight the battle was 35 kilometres. He roused his men and they walked all through the night with their backpacks on and their armour. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had to walk all through the night without sleep, with the armour on and with my backpack on, I would have arrived at the time of battle exhausted and tired. And that's what they did. There were five kings, not one against them. The distance was 35 kilometres. They'd walked by foot and they were tired, but guess what? They turned up for the battle. They turned up for the battle. They were tired, but they still turned up. I don't know how many of you today are tired from the battles you're fighting. I don't know what your battles are. I know we all fight them. Let's be real. I want to encourage you today that if you're fighting a battle and you're weary, that is not an excuse to stand down and not stand up for battle. Stand up, fight your battle, even if you're tired. And the most amazing thing is, what does it say there? It says, that, and more of the enemy died from the hailstones than were actually even killed by the swords of the Israelites. So when we're tired and turn up for the battle, God is on our side and the miraculous can happen more than we can achieve just in our own strengths. It can be some of the biggest battles in life. It's interesting, it's often when we're on the brink of seeing the most amazing victories in God 
that we're the most tired and tempted to give up. I can think of a number of times in my life when I've been tired, when I would have preferred to have sat down and said, the battle is too great. In fact, while I was preparing this in my own journal that I write and I wrote down and I said, God, yes, there's five kings against me at the moment. I feel like there's more than I can cope with. And yes, I am tired and I feel like I've done that 35k trip. But God, between you and I, I will turn up for this battle. I will not let tiredness defeat me. Even in tiredness, God is on our side. He is with us. And I thought that was just amazing to think that more were killed by the hailstones that came from heaven on behalf of Joshua than was killed by just might and strength and normal um, fighting in a battle. So I'm about to finish. My summary is Joshua was driven by the promises of God. That's what drove him. He could see what God had ahead for him in the promised land, but he prepared in the wilderness for those battles. And he prepared by lingering in the presence of God. He sought God for the strategies for each and every battle that was to come, and he learnt to fight tired. If I could just have the worship team just thank you. We're just going to play quietly in the background just one of those songs that we had just before we, when we were singing, the one about oceans. And I just want you to think about those messages and think about those points and say, God, which of those things was this message for me today?